ladies and gentlemen. This is the In Control Family Foundation's Safe Driving Podcast. And today we have joining us Jeff Larson. Jeff, hello. Hi. Thank you for joining us, Jeff. Jeff is the, let's see if I can get this right, Director of Highway Safety. And that is in the Office of Grants and Research that is part of the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security in the state of Massachusetts. How'd I do? Very, very impressive. You're oh, that's very good. Yeah. Untrainable. We also have Jeremy Randall on board. Jeremy, hello. Hello, everybody. And Jeremy is our Director of Operations. So I, I think our subject today is teens' biggest dangers. And it's great to have Jeff on board for this. Uh, Jeremy and I certainly talk a lot about the dangers that teens face but Jeff, uh, it probably does more talking than any of us, if that's at all possible, because he's out there talking with a lot of communities in different states in his role and then in past roles. So first and foremost, Jeff, I was hoping you might tell us a little bit about your bio and what brought you to this arena. Uh, sure. Um, for, and first of all, thanks for having me on. It's good to talk about these things because it's it's important. So I'm as the director of highway safety, I oversee a lot of funding that goes out to police departments and other nonprofit organizations to try to keep the roads safe in Massachusetts for drivers and pedestrians and riders and, and everyone out there. And I came from working at Safe Roads Alliance, which is a nonprofit here in Massachusetts that was the publisher of the Parent Supervised Driving Program. And we did a lot with seatbelts and distracted driving. And before that, I was, a, I was a traffic reporter in Boston and a couple of other cities as well. Now, one of the things that impressed me in their few on the list of things you've done, but this is one of them. In your past, I, I really appreciated the approach you took to discouraging the use of accident and replacing it with the use of crash, particularly in the media, but that's not the only arena that you've really pushed that message in. Can you talk to that a little bit? Um, I can. I'll try to keep it short because I tend to get on my soapbox about these things. But so the the word accident, just it it's not right in most circumstances. It's certainly not right in almost any circumstance that the media is using it. So when I was a traffic reporter, as an example, when I saw a crash, whether I was in a helicopter or looking at a camera from a studio, when I saw that event taking place, all I knew was that there was a physical event where two vehicles or three or more, or just one, struck something. I know there was a physical event. I knew there was a crash, but I didn't have the knowledge to be able to say, oh, that was an unintentional event that was that had no negligence, no criminality. I didn't know that. And I even without that knowledge, I called it an accident. And reporters still do that. And and reporters are journalists. Journalists are supposed to report the facts that they know. They're not supposed to state assumptions. So when a reporter looks or hears about an incident on the road, all they know is that there was a physical incident. They don't know the circumstances or the intent or the negligence or the criminality. So they, they don't have the information to be able to accurately call it an accident, which is, you know, it's not necessarily a big problem. But the problem is, is that it affects the way we look at what happens on the road. It makes all of us think, uh, well, when, when something happens, well, it was an accident. These things happen and nothing that can be done about it. But, you know, almost 40,000 people die on the roads in America every year. And we just sort of make this, we shrug our shoulders and we use this word accident like it's 
oh, well, there's nothing that can be done about it because accidents happen. And, and I think that if we started to, if we just stopped using that word, it might make us just turn our heads and look a little bit different and think a little bit different about that, that crashes happen because people make the wrong decisions. They do things that are wrong. I mean, are there circumstances where things ha- just happen? Um, sure. But it, it, not very often. It's almost always because somebody has done something wrong. And when we call it an accident, it sort of just says, eh, don't worry about it. And I just think that's wrong. I think we need to pay attention to what we're doing in our vehicles so that people can take responsibility for their actions. Well, between Jeremy and I, you've got uh, a couple of uh, supporters in that respect, and we, we certainly believe in the concept and appreciate the efforts you've made there. And I'm sure we'll talk more about some of the other things you've done as we go through the various uh, teen biggest dangers. We're going to start off by mentioning other teens. And the, the point I always try to make with teenagers, so the parents recognize this, is there is a frontal lobe development concept that if you don't understand, you better figure it out pretty quick. The brain is not going to completely finish forming until some point, and they'll no longer be teenagers. It's going to be some point in their mid to early 20s. In my case, it may not ever happen, but that risk-taking and the decision-making skills that a young person has are just not all the way formed until they're older. And oftentimes, I know when I first got involved in this more than a dozen years ago, there was legislation where they were talking about increasing the age at which someone could go get their license. But I don't see us increasing that age until the mid-20s. I think if it ever did get changed, it might be a year or two so that they get some additional driving time. But it is not realistic for us as a country to have people wait until their mid-20s and their brains fully developed to get their license. So decision-making that can take place for their own decisions is an issue but also having additional young people in the vehicle, everything from the things that a young person might find funny to do to somebody while driving, the added weight of that person, the distractions of that person, all those pieces are dangerous. And Jeremy, any thoughts on that, just other teens being a dangerous piece? Well, just, you know, I think that the research is pretty clear that the more teens that are in the car, the, the higher the risk And a lot of it is going to do with peer pressure, encouraging somebody to drive faster or do something stupid behind the wheel. There's just so many things going on. The more people you have in the car, they're they're asking you questions. So basically, the more people you have in the car, the more most of these factors go up, right? You're talking about more distractions certainly being present, the peer pressure, the impact that has. And Dan, you mentioned even the weight, something as simple as that, that we tend to not give a lot of credence to. You know, every additional person in the vehicle is going to add the weight and it's going to take it longer to stop, be harder to change direction, harder to steer. There's just a lot going on there. And, and the teens, they're new drivers. They don't need this extra influence and, and limitation on them. This is the one thing that parents don't know about enough. They just, you know, um, parents know in their minds that, that kids should not be drinking and driving, that they should wear their seatbelts and they should put their phone away. Parents don't understand the danger of other teens being in the vehicle. And it is the single most prevalent factor in fatal crashes for teens, bar none. All of the other things that we're going to talk about today pale in comparison to the number of fatalities that happen 
because of, of this particular circumstance. When teens drive with other teens, it so greatly increases the chances of a crash, an injury crash, and a fatal crash, and parents don't know it. I, I can't tell you how often I talk to parents about, about teens and what the, what's going on, and they don't understand that that's something. They look at it as, oh, well, my kid can drive to hockey practice with his friends now, and he can come home, and he can... And that is the thing that is the most surprising to parents when I talk to them about it. They, they do not know this. And it's for all of the reasons that you guys just talked about it. Jeff, I think that's a really good point. And we've mentioned earlier in another podcast about the graduated licensing laws, one of which includes that a new driver is not supposed to have other teens in the vehicle with them initially. And after six months, they kind of graduate out of that. One of the bigger problems we have in a lot of communities is a lot, to your point, a lot of parents either A, don't know that, or B, don't seem to think it's a big deal. Yeah. And so a lot of new drivers are driving around from day one with the car full of their friend. And to your point again, it is the most dangerous thing they're going to find themselves doing. We lose too many kids in larger groups for all the reasons we described. Parents need to recognize that's a big deal. And it's not something that the police can easily enforce. They don't necessarily know who just got their license. And, you know, some of these kids look like they're 40 and some of them look like they're 12. It's a big crapshoot for them to try to figure out who just got their license the other day and shouldn't have other passengers in the car. Well, that's a really good point, actually, because um, all of the laws that are related to teen drivers are challenging for police to, to enforce it at, at the beginning. It is really up to parents to make sure that they're enforcing it with their teens, that they're the ones who are making sure that their teens are not driving with other teens, are not being put in the circumstance where they're going to drive impaired, wear seatbelts, drive the, the proper speed limit. Because police don't, can't tell if somebody is 16 or 18 or 22. They just, they can't. So it, it, and if parents aren't involved, the laws will have no effect at all. Parents have to take responsibility for it. And in fact, I take it a step further. And if a parent is not, quote, policing this stuff on their own, they're not modeling the right behavior. So other laws, the teens are going to get to pick and choose from. Oh, is 100%. it now okay to do other things? So 100%, 100%. I think that's a great point. So I want to talk about seatbelts, though. When you came into the state of Massachusetts working in the position that you're in now, I'm pretty sure we were 48th place in the country. 49. Is that true? 49th in the country. We were at 70, we were, we were right. below 73% in our seatbelt use, and only New Hampshire had a worse seatbelt use rate than Massachusetts did. Live free and die, as I like to say. So since then, we've improved, and I know we have a long way to go, but can you speak to some of the reasons why we might not have had such a good rate of wearing our seatbelts? and what you've done? And then I want to talk to Jeremy a little bit about why seatbelts are so important. So honest to goodness, I don't know why Massachusetts has this bad seatbelt use rate. I just, I don't know. It's, 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 the, it's the biggest confusion in, in, in my world. For years, Massachusetts drivers have just not worn their seatbelts. We have come up in the last few years. We were at 73%. We're now up to 82%. We're still at about number 45 in the country. The national average is over 90% in the seatbelt use rate. And this isn't this you know this ends up in a lot of cases the argument of well don't tell me what to do in my car and it becomes a libertarian kind of political conversation for some people but there are red states Georgia, Michigan that have seatbelt use rates that are over 
98, 99%. Almost, you know, there's no, people do not not wear their seatbelts in those states. But we have a problem with uh, with young males, commercial truck drivers, pickup truck drivers. Uh, Dan is a pickup truck driver uh, who don't who just don't wear their seatbelts. So a lot of the messaging that we have been trying to do over the last few years is focusing on those populations that have the lowest seatbelt use rate in Massachusetts. Um, commercial truck drivers in Massachusetts, less than 50% seatbelt use rate. Less than 50%. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Wow. Jeremy, I, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit. I know we went through this early on, but talk to the importance of the safety belt and what it does. Well, Dan, just to say, you know, I'm also sort of just in the dark on, on why Massachusetts is so bad, but we do have a couple of guesses. And when we talked about it earlier, we talked about how it tends to be like a, a cultural thing, right? So if a lot of other teenage boys aren't wearing their seatbelts, then the other teenage boys are become less likely to wear it. If all the other truck drivers that work at this place don't wear it, then the new guy coming in is less likely to wear it. So there's definitely a lot of that going on. And then we we have this idea that, you know, seatbelts are only there to prevent injuries in a crash. And although they're there for that purpose, that is certainly not their only job. And, you know, and in control, we like to say really the, the main purpose of a seatbelt is about that crash prevention, right? It holds you in place, which then allows you to use your, your legs and your arms and everything about you to control the car. And so if you're bracing yourself with your hands or you're bracing yourself with your legs and to try to hold yourself in position to avoid something, then you've lost control over the car. And so the better the driver that you are, the more important it becomes that you are buckled in, held in place to allow you to really control that vehicle. And so, you know, that's the approach I take when I do commercial training or, or law enforcement, no matter what group, it's kind of go to their ego. So with your young driver, be like, oh, you really want to be a good driver? You're doing so well. It's so important you're wearing your seatbelt to allow you to have that control. No, Jeremy, I think you're absolutely right. I've, I've heard I've heard Dan ramble incoherently about that on a number of occasions, but you stated it much more clearly than he ever did. I, I think that um, uh, I'm, I'm I fun because I love Dan. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, one of the things that is uh, is really beneficial. I know that a lot of NASCAR drivers, when they started sort of being asked to wear uh, or you know starting wearing um, devices in their vehicles, started to realize it helped them to control and drive better because they're, they're now more in control of their vehicles than they were before. I, I think I got that from you, Dan. Is that right? Is that where I heard that? Well, I, I don't know if I would say NASCAR, but the, the first evidence of seatbelts and vehicles it had to do with racing. And, you know, we're going way back. Vehicles were on circle tracks and coming around and somebody would lose control and find themselves halfway out of the car on a turn. And it just kind of graduated to what we now know as the, the safety belt. And they've a number of different racing organizations have led the world in the technology behind a lot of this stuff. You know, Dan, I think that's something I talk about sometimes. It's It was those days when there was no top to a car, there was no roll bar. When you got in a crash, you wanted to be thrown out of the vehicle. And so it didn't start as that safety feature. It started as, you know, a smaller guy who was sliding all over his seat who couldn't maintain high levels of control over the car at high speeds. So he tied himself to his seat. And then he did significantly, you know, better in the next race. And then it just started flowing that way. Like, Drivers started holding their upper body, their lower body, everything in position so they could be more precise. They could have more control. They could have a higher level of performance. And then it turned into, oh, wait, 
we can also add other safety features along with this seatbelt to really make this a lot safer for us as well. So here's here's my here, here's my take on seatbelts. Now that we're going through the uh, coronavirus COVID nineteen seatbelts are the original PPE. Yeah. Earlier we spoke about and we were talking about how we a lot of people have this idea with seatbelts that it's only about me. If I don't want to wear it, it's my choice. You can't make me. That's sort of an idea. But when we think about it as a a device that gives you more control, right, that allows you to have that control of the vehicle, it's not just about you anymore. If Jeff, if you decided, you know what, I don't want to wear my seatbelt anymore, I'm not going to, then you're putting me at risk and everybody else at the road at a much higher risk of being involved in a crash and hurting somebody else as well. And so it, it isn't that, and I don't want to break like the helmet law or, you know, any of these other ones where you hit me with a helmet or not a helmet doesn't hugely affect me. It has a huge effect over yourself, but these seatbelts are, are extremely tied directly to crashes. And if you don't wear it, you're going to be involved in more crashes. You wear it, you have fewer, they're less severe, and a lot less injuries as well. So, become- and, and I'm 100% bought into that. I absolutely agree. And, uh, I'm, you know, I, you, you have, uh, I'm completely sold on that idea that um, seatbelts are a safety feature to help you prevent a crash in the first place. The challenge with it is that it's very difficult to prove it in data, right? With with everything in highway safety, everything is data driven. Somehow, some way, someone needs to figure out a way of uh, showing in some objective manner to prove that out. And and I haven't I haven't seen that. I believe it. I believe it a thousand percent, but I just haven't seen the data that says this this is what happens and here's the number to prove it. I think it'd be an interesting time and, and we can, the group of people that we have on the podcast now can go into each one of these categories for probably the equivalent of a, a single podcast or more. I will say the whole concept of driver education, everybody wants to think that it's a science. I think there's as much art to science in it because of the point you just made, Jeff. I can tell you we have had police officers go through our training who fought us tooth and nail about wearing a seatbelt, to which, you know, the argument typically is, well, what if I got to get out and chase a bad guy? And I'm not a small man. I can look at a lot of these police officers and say, listen, when's the last time you chased anybody, let alone (laughs) had to jump out of the car to go do it? So have your seatbelt on, and then you can click it and jump out and go. And we've had more than a few police officers, A, change their mind about it, but B, circle back to us later on and say, you know what? I now realize I've been in a few crashes simply because I didn't have my seatbelt on. And by having my seatbelt on, I found myself in a couple of pursuit situations where I was able to stay in better control of the car. So again, you believe it. Jeremy believes it. I believe it. Have we figured out a way to strap sensors on everybody to confirm all this stuff? Not yet, but hopefully there's an MIT parent out there listening to this who has some contraptions in their office and they can give us a call and we'll We'll get this actually on paper, but I, I absolutely want to reinforce that that's the role seatbelts play, and, and that's our story, and we're sticking to it. And, and I'm 100% behind you on it. So drugs and alcohol in teens. I mean, again, Jeff, and it pains me every time I have to kind of give you accolades, but you guys have done a lot in getting some new messaging out, particularly about marijuana use with young drivers. But can you speak to this category in general? And then maybe we'll talk to Jeremy about how it actually impacts their use behind the wheel. Well, yeah, I mean, so Massachusetts, we, you know, we're now a, an adult use legal state um, where so um, it, marijuana is more at least legally prevalent in 
our communities. So one of the things that's been happening over the last couple of years is there's been a lot of discussion about whether and in what way cannabis affects a, a person. You know, we know that there's it, it affects um, your thought processes, your reflexes, and and some you know important things that are related to driving. But there's there's at the same time there's a a very strongly held belief by some in the community that cannabis is not is not dangerous to do behind the wheel. You have you have some people say, well, it makes me it makes me drive more safely because I'm more uh, aware of my surroundings. And I'm, there's not a lot of science ab- about it at this point. I mean, the, the, the data that's, that's out there is relatively weak uh, in large part because we haven't been gathering it. So it's, we're, we're, we're trying just to educate people about what cannabis can do. It's not alcohol. It does not affect you in the same way as alcohol, but it affects you. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an education process. It's not just for teens. It's, it's for adults as well. It's for uh, adults of, you know, of all ages who have different impressions about it. You know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man. And when I was a youngster, you know, I used marijuana and, you know, I'm fully aware of what it did to me. And I'm fully aware that when I was affected by it, I shouldn't have been behind the wheel. And I wasn't, just to be clear. But, you know, that's not the impression that everybody gets. Because, again, as, as people use more and more, it has a different effect on them. So you have people who have been long-term users who, who are affected in a different way than somebody who is a neophyte and fairly new to it. You know, and you can't, you can't just say you've smoked this much, therefore you're this high. Because Jeremy might be minimally affected, whereas Dan might be you know, high as a kite and they, you've, you've used the same amount of cannabis. So it's just, it's, just, it's just a message thing. You need to get people to understand that they're, they're going to be affected by it and we need to be careful and take responsibility while we're behind the wheel, whether it's alcohol or cannabis or quite frankly, any other drug that's out there. Prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs can affect you as well. All of these things are impairments. Absolutely. And, you know, Jeff, all the effects that marijuana are going to have, there's none that you could point at saying, oh, this is an obvious effect that basically affects everybody. That's a good thing for driving. That doesn't exist, right? The, the delayed reaction time, the effect on reflexes, thought processes, even, you know, the attention. People say, oh, I pay better attention. I think what they mean is they get hyper-focused on what's right in front of them. Yes. And they become less aware of their surroundings overall. That's right. And you may actually drive slower, but that doesn't isn't necessarily doesn't equal a better driver in any way. It, it's going to equal a negative, right? And and the research is tough. It's it's tough to see it exactly, but it should be simple for anybody that's experienced it to say, no, 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 this is not something. I, I, in no way will I be a better driver, and therefore I should not have it in my system at all. And I appreciate when people bring up the other the the other drugs, right? The over-the-counter medications, the prescription medications, because it's another one of those things that we say, oh, it's not a big deal. It won't really have an impact. Yeah, right. Something as simple as Benadryl can have a huge impact on somebody, right? I mean, it can put some people to sleep and have almost no effect on others. So anything we put in our body that has an effect on the way we think or the way we feel will in some way affect the way that we drive. And generally, this is not going to be a positive way. Right, we need to we need to be driving, you know, well rested without alcohol or drugs in our system. You know, wearing our seatbelt. There's so many things we have to do right to be a safe driver that we can't just be willing to say, ah, this one, this one's not that big of a deal. 
again, you're 100% right on this. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning with this, this idea of crash versus accident. We need to take responsibility. You know, if it's it, this, we're ha- we have this question about, well, it's not that much of an impact, but you're, you're not, you're not at a hundred percent. You're, you know, if you're, if you're affected, you're not only risking your life, but you're risking everybody else's life. The, mo- the most dangerous thing any of us do in the day, in our day is to get behind the wheel or in a vehicle we're, that's when we're most likely to get hurt and die. And we don't take that seriously. And and our attitudes about impairment reflect it. I want to take one more step on this. Again, we're talking to parents of current or new or future young drivers. Modeling is huge here. So we've mentioned already that we're seeing a lot less crashes from young drivers who have alcohol in their system than we did back in the 70s. But... I personally interact. I've got a high school senior, a high school sophomore, an eighth grader, and a fifth grader in my household. Yes, we went a little over the over the uh, limit on kids, but I see parents in their peer peer group, so their friends' parents, on a regular basis at certain outings, and they'll have a couple of drinks in front of their kids, and then drive everybody home, mm-hmm. and that's an issue. You really, you know, first and foremost, you have to think about the fact of the door that you're opening for your own kids to say, okay, drinking and driving is okay. And then to turn around and and place it into all the different things, you know, if they're, if it's okay with them that they drink and drive, then I'm young and I I can get high and drive. It's not that big a deal. Your point about accident versus crash falls into all of this, but really model the right behavior and be conscious about this stuff because it has dire consequences if your kids aren't taking it seriously. And I mentioned prior, I think we could go into each one of these categories indefinitely, but I want to keep us moving along and I want to talk about fatigue. Jeremy, I know we went through drowsy driving just a little bit before, but if you can kind of revisit it for us and tell us what some of the dangers are and what some things we can do to avoid it, and then maybe Jeff can speak to some of the messaging they have for it. Absolutely. You know, we talked about this already, like Dan said, but driving drowsy, you know, driving tired is a big deal. People die as a result. And I think that it would be hard pressed for many of us to decide, oh, is that person in front of me? Are they high? Are they drunk? Are they extremely distracted? Or are they driving really tired? I mean, when we get very tired, it affects us. It, it you know, we can read the same paragraph a hundred times. We still have no idea what it said, but we're out there driving our our big heavy piece of machinery at high speeds on the road, and we aren't really thinking too much about it. And we we have to think seriously about how much rest we need, and even something, maybe somebody's got the data on this, how even during daylight savings time, right, when we lose an hour of sleep, the crash rate goes up, right? Things like this, this is a big deal. And so just remind your young driver and and model this properly as well. There's got to be a limit where you say, you know what, I'm too tired, I can't drive. Because what you're doing, if you if you do get behind the wheel, is putting yourself and anyone else you might come across on the road in in pretty big danger. I mean, a lot of, you know, some of the data would say less than four hours of sleep in a night makes you equivalent of a drunk driver in your reaction time, your fine motor skills as somebody, you know, that has a blood alcohol concentration of 0.08, two nights uh, uh, consecutively of six or less hours puts you sort of in that same spot. So a lot of us fall into these categories and you talk about teens, they never sleep. 
No, I think that that's, it's a really good point. And this goes, this is another one of those things that I think parents underestimate as being um, problematic. Um, and, and it's, it's one that affects teens more than it affects adults because they don't, and teens don't, haven't quite learned how their body is affected by different circumstances. They're still, st- still young and learning. And to Dan's point, their brains haven't developed fully. And uh, with school starting early, they, you know, and they're up late. Yeah, t- the, the, the tired driving thing is, is a significant problem. And, and it's, it, it's, again, it's one of those things that we've been working to try to get parents to be aware of it. It's particularly a problem for college students around the time that, you know, they go through finals and then have to drive home for a long distance. So, you know, so parents, when your kids are going, going to college and they're going to be up and, um, you know, around Thanksgiving and heading into the, the holiday finals period and then making long trips home over the, over the road, that's incredibly dangerous. When the time changes, that's incredibly dangerous because people are losing sleep at that point as well. And, you know, not to mention during the summertime when kids are staying up later and they're, you know, they're not under the same sort of time and structure restrictions that they are, you know, they're, they're driving drowsy a lot of the times. Um, and this, is, this goes back to, again, parents need to be involved in understanding of what, if their kids are tired, that's an impairment. That's like Jeremy said, it can be just as bad as driving drunk or high. Well, again, I want to kind of keep us moving along, but driving drowsy is dangerous. Driving impaired under alcohol, drugs, very dangerous. And we spent a significant amount of time with Emily Stein from Safe Roads Alliance talking about distracted driving. But Jeff, I think it's important to talk about what the state is doing and what you've been doing in this arena. And I think we've done a pretty good job of educating people on what is so dangerous. We, we went so far as to talk in detail about how just being stopped at a stop sign and thinking that it's okay to suddenly pick up your phone talked about some of that research out of Utah and how you're not really engaged in driving for the next 27, 30 seconds once you've picked up that phone and put it back down. So uh, rather than rehash all those specific details, anything you could add would be great. Well, I think that in in Massachusetts, the confusion at the moment with regard to distracted driving is that the hands-free law in Massachusetts does not pertain to 16 to 18-year-old drivers. And this is this is something that we had to really message. The hands-free law in Massachusetts is something that pertains to adults. Teen drivers, those under under the age of eighteen, cannot touch the phone. They can't use it. They can't use it for GPS. Nothing. They are uh, there. There's no use of the cell phone whatsoever for teen drivers. And so when we when the hands-free law passed in Massachusetts, there was a lot of confusion about that when we were um because it's only for older drivers. So I, I think that's my my point. I think it's uh that's that's the only point where there's confusion in relation to, to teen driving. That's a good thing to clarify. Jeremy, anything you'd want to add about distracted driving that we might not have covered well before? Just that it's so much more than than just a cell phone, right? Engaged driving means you are paying attention to the road and everything else around you and everything that might come up. It's our brain is active in, in driving uh, and it's not floating off somewhere else. We're not thinking about what we do if we won the lottery or, or anything else behind the wheel. So we have to make sure that all of those distractions are, are eliminated or minimized and managed as, as we talked about later, things you can't fully get rid of. But I think it's really important for you to not only know what the laws are in your specific state, then to make a law of your household and that vehicle and your teen that this stuff can't happen. You can't be doing this, 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 or anything other than driving. 
And I know we we talked a little bit before about you know signing a contract with your team. Here's what you lose if you break this rule, things like that. I mean, whatever you can do, but make sure you get that message across and take it seriously because we all think we're going to see that deer, that moose, that kid, that car. But if your brain is somewhere else, it doesn't matter if your hands are on the wheel, your eyes are on the road, you're not going to be able to react to it. So it just becomes so much more important. And if you haven't listened to the earlier podcast where we talk about distracted driving and drugs and driving, alcohol and driving, go back and listen to that one as well. We go a lot more in depth on distracted driving there too. Well, and this is the, this is the importance of the, of the G, what are called GDL laws in Massachusetts, the, the JOL, the Junior Operator Law, is that these, um, there are restrictions that are placed on teens that allow for teens to, to drive in the safest of circumstances so that they're not being put into, the, into these risky situations. The JOL law keeps the phone out of teens' hands. It keeps other drivers out of the vehicle, or other passengers, young passengers, out of the vehicle. It puts a, a, a restriction on when they can drive, so it limits the drowsy driving circumstances. So the teens can learn how to drive in safe circumstances. They can build up their skills so that when they're older, first of all, they survive to be older, but they also learn how to drive safely. And that's, that's, really, that's really why, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about are, are things that are, are within the JOL or the GDL laws, they're called in other states. Let's find a way of giving, letting teens learn how to drive, to do it safely. And then as they get older, sort of introduce some of these riskier activities like other passengers and driving in, t- in times that might be later. Pretty decent segue into this inexperienced driver concept. And I want to add, we've already mentioned in a previous episode that a lot more kids are waiting until they turn 18 before they pursue their license. Yeah. And so all these things as a parent, you still have influence over an 18 or 19 year old, maybe not as much as you had when they were 15 and 16, but you still have a lot of influence over them. And these graduated licensing laws are things that you should really, even though they don't legally have those same things, when they first get their license, don't be jumping around driving with all your friends. Don't use the phone for anything for a year. And if you can start practicing those things before they get their license, they're going to be far less likely to get themselves into trouble. And we're talking about inexperience being one of the more dangerous issues. Of course, they're inexperienced when they first get their license. But the problem is very little practice. Even if you can do the 100 hours that we're talking about what we want you to do with your new driver, that's not enough for them to be experienced. I mentioned all these kids I've got at home, and they're playing various sports. i got a son playing basketball. Every day now he's spending over an hour practicing because he made the varsity team as a sophomore, and he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's going to get nothing close to that amount of practice before he becomes a licensed driver. And it's just not right considering how dangerous driving is. Yeah, no, it's it's the 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 experience piece is is really critical. I have a son right now who has his learner's permit, which he which he he can't get his license because we're under quarantine and he can't finish up. He has uh, about 80, 85 hours of driving experience with me. It's really hard to get that time. It's it's for parents. It's you have to you have to be diligent of making sure that your kid drives in every circumstance that's available and they're going to whine and and complain, but it's just, it's your, you know, they have to understand that every time you get in the vehicle, they are driving 
And, and, and by the way, while we're talking about experience, you know, during, during, there's, there's the Road Ready app that was developed by uh, Safe Roads Alliance as part of the Parent Supervised Driving Program. It's this uh, downloadable way to track your kids' driving time when they're under the learning, learner's permit. I love it. I, 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 we, we use it all the time to track it. And it, it helps. It becomes a part of like a game because my son's trying to get as many hours. And, and in my mind, Dan... Um, my kid is trying to get a hundred hours because I think your daughter wasn't, it was, had somewhere close to a hundred hours that you were trying to get close to. I'm just trying to beat you in that. Project. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good segue. We're going to make sure that we put the road ready app, uh, link in the, in the show notes again. And I think that helps us with this last part about night driving. I mean, uh, re- depending on the time of the year that you do in your permitted driving, you may not be spending that much time driving at night, but one of the really good things about that Road Ready app is it's going to allow you to track how often you drove in inclement weather, how often you drove at night. And those are going to be things that your teen or new driver is certainly going to do on their own. So the more practice you can get with it. And Jeff, if I remember correctly, I don't know if you'll know any of these numbers off the top of your head, but I remember you guys tracked users of the Road Ready app, had them tell you how many hours they thought they drove with their teen and then actually looked at the real hours. And there was a pretty significant difference, if I recall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, pe- parents um, grossly, I don't remember the exact number because it was a few years ago, but I remember parents grossly overestimated the number, the amount of time that they spend in their vehicle. Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, you go out driving with your kid, you go to the store and yeah, eh, half hour, you know, we were, we were out for a half hour. But the, t- the amount of time that you were actually driving was, you know, only 12 minutes. And over the course of, of trying to log 40 hours, which is the requirement in Massachusetts, if you think you've driven 40 hours, you've probably really only driven about 20 hours. And, and so it's, it's, it's a good way when you use the app to really be precise about the amount of time that you've driven and, and have a good sense of how much more you have to do. And by the way, the app will track um, whether you know the amount of night driving time you have have done because it's not only experience in time you know you don't you don't it's not just having a, you know a hundred hours because if you do a hundred hours going back and forth to school on the same road every single day that doesn't you know you don't get experience driving at night when it's raining in the snow in unfamiliar areas in different levels of traffic. These are all things that you need to have experience with before you start driving on your own. You know, if, because you don't want to put your kid out there never having been on a highway at rush hour, you know, and suddenly he's out driving in a highway at rush hour. You, you need to do everything. Absolutely. There is one big category that we really haven't given a lot of thought to, and that's speed. And unfortunately, the position that I've been in running in control for so long, I've met a lot of families who have lost loved ones in car crashes. And oftentimes, particularly with newer drivers, speed is a huge factor. What's interesting is speed does not necessarily mean they were doing 90 miles an hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. So speed's one of those things, you know, that we can't tell the difference driving in a straight line if we're going uh, 35 or 37 miles an hour. But the impact that increase in speed has over your control of the vehicle is way, way larger than we than we really know for the average person. What we need to consider is that every mile per hour really does make a big difference in your ability to maintain control of your vehicle, your stopping distance. Everything makes a difference here. 
And unfortunately, you know, teens, they like to play around with that. They want to know, oh, how fast does my car go? How uh, I want to race my friends, all these things that have to do with going fast and, you know, having fun. This is the way they think about it. And we need to instill in them very early on that even that one mile over that speed limit uh, can have a huge impact on your ability to control the vehicle. It's so hard to for me to just say that and you would just believe me. I'm not sure how best to communicate that through a podcast. But you know, in the training that we do, we will really show students that two miles an hour faster, they go from having control to two miles an hour faster, completely losing it. And it blows their mind. They're like, what, what just happened? You went faster. You lost control. You think about it in this way. There has to be a line, right, where you have control on one side, and if you pass it, you lose it. That line exists in every single vehicle on every single road. And Jeff's job and the people who d- develop speed limits, right, is to try to come up with what's going to be the very best line to, to keep people safe, to get with them where they're going, but be safe. And we have to think that the speed limit applies in perfect conditions. So not even nighttime driving, right? Perfect conditions uh, in the average car with one or two occupants inside. And then the speed limit is the limit of control. If you drive your car faster than it has control, doesn't matter how good of a driver you are, you don't have control of it anymore if something happens. If you have to brake or steer aggressively, it's not going to work the same way as if you were going even a couple miles an hour slower. And so when we talk about modeling, this is something that so many of us are guilty of. A 35 mile an hour road, you know, I ask students in class, how fast do you normally go? 40, 45, 5, 10 over the speed limit. It, it's crazy to think, you know, and then we, we get in an incident and we, we say, oh, that was an accident. Because we think, oh, well, if we were going two miles an hour slower, it wouldn't have made any difference. It absolutely would have. And if I can leave us, you know, if I can say anything about speed, the faster you go, the less control you have and the more likely incidents are to happen and the more severe the result, the, the resulting crash may be. So if I can leave us with one thing today, it's, it's remind them to keep that speed down. However, you can figure out to explain that one or two miles an hour over is the difference between maybe them staying alive or dying or or not hitting that kid on the side of the road, right? That's the difference. It really is just a couple miles an hour. And I can't believe how many times I've heard, you know, kids say either their parents or a driver's ed instructor or somebody told them that, oh, they can go five or 10 over the speed limit and they won't get a ticket. Obviously they shouldn't, I don't want them to get a ticket, but it's so much more than that. When it really comes down to it and, and your teen, who cares about the ticket? Are they going to be safe and do they have control? right? That's what you care about. And so we got to keep those speeds down. And along with that, everything we just talked about, right? It isn't just any one thing. We we have to make sure that we keep the teens out of the, the car with them, the other kids out of the car with them, that they're wearing their seatbelt so they have that control. They're not on any drugs or alcohol that might impair them in any way. They're well rested, right? That they're not distracted by anything else. They're just paying attention to the road that they get more time behind the wheel so they have the experience to see what's going on out there and that they've driven in many situations. But we remember that nighttime driving, they often drive faster. They drive with kids. They tend to be more impaired at those times. And so to try to you know get them experience with that, but as a newer driver, really you know try to limit how often they are out at night, especially late at night. And I just went on my little rant there, guys, but if anybody has anything to add, please go right ahead. The only thing I have to add, and as with everything, you're 100% right, um, is that we're, we're sitting here at this moment. I don't know when people will be listening to this, but we're in the middle of the 
uh, coronavirus lockdown period of time and people aren't going to work and kids aren't going to school. Um, what we are seeing right now on the roads, not only in Massachusetts, but around the country, is people are driving like maniacs. They are the, the speeds on the roads that we're seeing right now are wildly inappropriate for the, for the conditions. And in Massachusetts, we are, we are seeing an increase in the number of crash fatalities um, that we're, we have on our roads, even with the lighter volume of traffic that's out there. And it's entirely because of speed, and it's entirely because people are taking um, undue advantage of the open roads, not only here in Massachusetts, but around the country. People are driving just like very badly right now. Well, Jeff, that's kind of a somber note to end on. So I do want to give you an opportunity to just add any other comments you'd want to give parents of new drivers before we sign off. Is there anything in particular you think is the one most important aspect that they should be thinking of? You know, I, I, it's, it's thank you for asking the question, but I, but I think it's really spend time with your kid in the vehicle. It's just enjoy the time. You know, your your child is going out into the world, and when when that vehicle is now available to them, they're going out further. And the time that you spend in the vehicle is actually a really pleasant time. It's you know, it's 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 a it's a time where you can um, enjoy them growing. You know, it, it's and it's it's a memorable period of life. Make it a, make it an enjoyable time. I, I you know, like I said, my I've I've been driving with my son. I just love it. You know, it's it's time we can spend together. You know, otherwise he's just in with his computer. He's talking to his friends. I never get to see him unless we're driving. So it's it's just a great time. Um, enjoy it and and don't be afraid of it either. Once there's once they have skills, then then you'll be safe. But you know, there's that there's that initial kind of terror pro- uh, process when they're learning how to drive and they make some mistakes. But um, once that period is done, then um, enjoy the time. Well. Jeff, I, I hope to talk to your son soon and find out his side of what, how much he's loving driving around with you. But in the meantime, uh, I want to thank Jeremy Randall for joining us as always. And Jeff, uh, you know, as much as I don't necessarily care for you as a human being, I do think you've done some amazing things for the state of Massachusetts, likely for the nation, because I'm sure you've influenced some other people and, and really appreciate your time today and everything you have been doing to keep all of us drivers safe. With that, I thank those of you who have listened to us today. We went a little longer than planned, but we appreciate you hanging in there, and we look forward to you hearing us again soon.